Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast about cinema in the Criterion Collection. I'm Matt Peterson, joined by Nate Myers. Tonight, The Parallax View, directed by Alan J. Pakula. Warren Beatty is Joe Frady, a small-time Oregon newspaper reporter who witnesses a dramatic assassination of a presidential candidate atop the Space Needle in Seattle. Cut to three years later. Slowly but surely, witnesses of that horrendous event are dying of supposedly natural and accidental causes, raising suspicion. Joe dives deeper into the possible conspiracy, chasing through small-town America and cities alike, leading him to the mysterious Parallax Corporation, whose agenda is murky at best. The second film in a loose trilogy, steeped in political paranoia, The Parallax View features a compelling performance by Beatty, drenched in the characteristic shadows of Gordon Willis's cinematography. Released by the Criterion Collection in 2021, the film is rightly counted among the quintessential 1970s political thrillers, capturing the dread and uncertainty of post-JFK America. Join Nate and me as we look over our shoulders at the Parallax View. So Nate, uh, this is a title I was surprised to, to see coming to Criterion, and I, I was pleased by it. Uh, this genre is is a genre that I'm definitely a fan of, the, the 1970s political thriller or political paranoia thriller, however you want to characterize it. Um, so th- there's quite a bit we could talk about here. I mean, we could talk about this genre as a whole, and, and maybe that's the best place to start. Uh, your your thoughts on the 70s political thriller and you know things you like about them, things you don't like, and any just general thoughts to begin with? I'm not by nature a particularly paranoid person. I don't really do conspiracy theories, so... Some people naturally have that kind of tendency within them, and I don't. So when I'm watching these kinds of movies, they either are going to capture me in the sense that I feel the paranoia or the urgency or the the conspiracy mindset of the creator, or they aren't, because they're not going to really probably relate to me on a personal level. So certain films of this genre I like a great deal, and certain films of it I find rather dull. And I think this is a film that would fall into the dull category because it doesn't really ever capture me, to be honest with you. Whereas, like, even though, like, if I think of this in comparison, because the, obviously the parallels with Kennedy are so clear here, the the book that this is based on was actually detailing Kennedy's assassination, and they, they switched it for the purposes of the movie. Yeah. But, you know, if you think about this in relation to JFK, that's a movie that, while I look at it and say it's historical nonsense, it's, it's a complete psychotic... Uh, fever dream of Oliver Stone. I find the movie endlessly fascinating because he makes me feel what he's feeling, right? Whereas uh, what I see here with Pacula, with Beatty, is not really the sense of I don't feel like I can see what they're doing. I kind of get the genre, the tropes, everything, but it doesn't really hit me on that visceral level of feeling the paranoia, feeling the anger, feeling the whatever, that the artist might have that motivates them to make this particular movie. So if I look at this versus other films of the period, uh, including uh, others by Pacula, right, uh, whether that's going to be All the President's Men or that's going to be Clute, uh, but just another, you know, same year was The Conversation, which 
isn't maybe, I guess, exactly political, but it nonetheless does have that sense of paranoia that we find in these kinds of films. Uh, or if you think of Three Days of the Condor, I've always found those movies to be much more satisfying of an experience because they do give me the feeling of what's going on in the minds of the of the makers, whereas this one, it feels like it's a study of the period, but you know, 50 years removed, I guess I'm not, I'm not relating to it on that gut level. Like you probably kind of need to, to really get the sense of the, the thriller. Yeah, I can understand that viewpoint. I mean, I, among films in this genre, I'd say this is on the weaker end. I, I still like the film. I think there's, there's a lot to like about it. Um, but yeah, is it as compelling as some of those other titles you mentioned? Yeah, not quite. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of Clute for sure. And, you know, all the president's men, JFK, interesting you mentioned that picture. I, I, I'm a fan of that film as well. I, it really. So what we're learning here, Matt, is that you're complete and total kook. Is that what we're getting? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, dist- distrust of the government is at an all-time high, supposedly at, at this point. So this, these films just just fit right in, right? Um, no, you know, JFK, and you, you kind of alluded to this, you know, JFK really does a great job of capturing, you know, paranoia might, might not be the best word, but just, just kind of that, yeah, that feverish sense of speculation surrounding such a traumatic event in American history, right? And I think that's what that film does really well. And, and to look at that film as like a piece of uh, of history that it's examining things in a straightforward and honest fashion is is not really the right way to look at it. Uh, but as a work of cinema, it's fantastic. It's one of the best edited films ever made, I think. Um, and films like this, I, I think at their best, they have to capture that sort of energy, right? They have to capture that, that tension. Uh, it, it even goes beyond just the language of cinema from a, a standpoint of a building suspense or, or um, uh, you know, horror or, or even action, right? It's, it's more about just the general feeling of dread that has to be really pervasive throughout the picture, I think, for a film like this to really work. And, and, and there are moments in this film where I, I think it's very effective. I think the opening sequence is, is really strong, you know, and, I just, I love the look of these films, uh, these 1970s, you know, scope Panavision type films and just the look of the film stock and, and how, you know, that this is stuff they're capturing in camera, right? There's no CGI here. There's no digital effects. It's all done practically. Uh, the action scenes might be somewhat awkward and maybe not the best editing, but they're just trying to make something work, right? And and I think this film is a really great example of that. And, um, you know, Gordon Willis, his cinematography, very distinctive here. Uh, he also worked on, on Clute. And, um, you know, it's a film that's layered in shadow, right? And, and it's appropriate for the material, uh, but it's visual sense of, tor- of storytelling here, I think does create that sense of dread that you want in a film like this. Uh, so I, I think that it's pretty effective overall in those moments. 
as the film goes on, especially in the climax of the film, I do think it loses some energy. Um, and the Clockwork Orange montage sequence <laughs> toward the end of the film, too, probably. We're going to have to talk about that in great detail at some point. Yeah, yes. yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Uh, maybe that overstays its welcome. Uh, but overall, I, I do think... Yeah, it's probably more in the realm of, of fascination than a film that's entirely successful, but it still deserves to be mentioned as an important film in this genre, I think. Well, I think, you know, uh, because we'll obviously focus in on Gordon Willis's contributions here, I think, at some length in this conversation because yeah. they are so apparent. Uh, so maybe we'll we'll hold off on, on commenting on that right away, but... Uh, I do think that the film, as you say, is very nicely made in terms of the visuals, in terms of even the structure of it, for the most part. Like you said, that that uh, training sequence, if you want to call it that, or the test sequence, is certainly not uh, maybe uh, as... I, I guess people like it. I know I've heard people talk about it because they like how counterintuitive is to have it in this movie and to put it where they do and just grind everything to a halt for it. But I still think narratively it doesn't work as well as it should. Um, and it doesn't have the impact that maybe they thought they were going to have. But as far as the actual scripting, I think that's where a lot of the problems are in my, in my reception of this movie compared to some of those other ones. Uh, and it's, it should be noted that part of that's I'm sure contributable, contributable to the fact that, um, the, there was a writer's strike that happened as they were getting ready to shoot this. Warren Beatty had other commitments, so if they didn't shoot it, they're going to lose him. So then they just went ahead and started shooting it. And it was famous that they were oftentimes getting the script the morning they were showing up to shoot a scene, and even the crew didn't really know what they were supposed to do. So it's kind of a, a astonishing that it comes off as well as it does in light of that. Yeah. But there are just scenes that seem, boy, where the hell is that coming from? You know, and, you know, a couple that stand out are the the bar fight, yeah, <laughs> uh, that just kind of like, what the hell is going on? Like, why is this prolonged bar fight taking place it's, right now? And the, yeah, it feels like they needed an clunky. action sequence, right? Yeah. Well, it feels like the star had his ego. You know, Warren Beatty is a big star, and I, I want to be a tough guy. I got to do some tough thing, right? You know, and I, I, I'm going to be a a badass that beats up this guy, right? Uh, yeah, kind of thing, right? It just seems so silly, right? And the there's the chase scene uh, when Warren Beatty steals the, the cop car uh, that seems like it's right out of the Dukes of Hazard, including up to it, including <laughs> the fact that he actually jumps the car and it flies through. I mean, I just yeah. expected the you know the <laughs> the county sheriff to take off his hat and throw it on the ground. You know, it's like, <laughs> there's all these little things like that. And uh, as you know, Matt, I'm a big fan of The Simpsons, and one of the little side characters on the Simpsons that I've always found very humorous is Troy McClure, the, the B movie actor that they have that comes up, uh, was voiced by Phil Hartman. And he'd always come in and say, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such films as, and then he'd say some silly sounding title. And I just thought to myself, the parallax view strikes me as though it should be a movie starring Troy McClure from the seventies. <laughs> if it's like, I could just see it. I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such films as the parallax view. And people would go, what you know? And so it, it's it it has some moments of that, but because there is such an incredibly talented production crew behind this in terms of the cinematography, it does get elevated, right? I mean, this is I think 
We talk sometimes about performances elevating the material. I think this is a case where the cinematography elevates the material and really makes up for some things that are perhaps lacking in the story itself. Well, before we get into cinematography, some of those goofy elements in the film really do stand out. And I, I don't know, it didn't bother me a whole lot. I, I did laugh, though, especially when that the police car <laughs> did that massive jump for really no reason uh, whatsoever. And I don't know why he had to be driving through all that mud and and spraying mud everywhere. It's just pretty silly. And then you got really random scenes, too, like that one scene where he goes to see the... Um, that scientist or psychologist and he's like playing pong with a monkey for some reason. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, any movie that has uh, a scene where you're playing pong with a monkey. Yeah. That has to be the product of a writer strike. Uh, but for some reason uh, it just, it didn't really bother me. It, it, there, there's really this offbeat quality to the film and, and, I do like how, how the film does seem to really take advantage of some unique locations. Um, there was this episode of, of the, I think I even mentioned this to you before, the, the PBS documentary series Frontline, uh, just about kind of the intelligence community in America and, and how many uh, sort of shell companies exist that are actually you know, divisions of the CIA or the, of the intelligence community. And they ex- exist in these very nondescript, you know, business parks that pretty much every city has, right? The, the, there's a, a suburb or an area that just has all these very anonymous-looking uh, office parks, and you don't really know what's going on in there. You don't really know what the companies are. And this film kind of captures that that feeling, and I, I like that about this film. And... and the visuals really amplify that too. Just how uh, people are frequently very small in the frame, and the architecture is is frequently looming over the characters, and it, it seems to always have this sense of this looming, kind of crushing infrastructure that that's really diminishing the power of of the characters in this film, especially Warren Beatty's character. So. I, maybe that's a good segue into uh, into the visuals and Gordon Willis specifically. Um, any any thoughts on on his contributions to this film? Well, I think they're immense. I mean, like I said, this is probably I, the I, I get on the poster. Warren Beatty gets billed as the main star, but the real main star here is Gordon Willis. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll confess, I've never been a big Warren Beatty fan. I've always thought he's kind of flat as an actor. And we could talk about. I actually was watching this thinking, you know. Who would have been a better actor for this part that could have made it a more interesting movie? So we can maybe talk about that yeah. when we get into the cast. But um, Gordon Willis here, I mean, that anamorphic lensing is just so wonderfully done here. And there's a lot of really great designs uh, in the cinematography here. And uh, I th- obviously there's the, the real kind of showstopper opening where it starts with the totem in Seattle and then it moves around to reveal the space needle right behind it and that that very kind of neat sense of this kind of seemingly ancient primitive structure you know being kind of replaced by a, a very modern structure and all these sorts of things of uh, how how society builds or moves through through the centuries you know it just I'll capture that one shot but even just some simple things like how when they're in that space needle during the assassination scene, how it is that he was able to get the lighting so wonderfully done so that you can still see what's outside. You can still see 
the city all around them, yeah. right? And you can see through it. It's not all blown out. And you also don't have everything completely draped in shadow that you can't see what's going on in this enclosed environment, right? And I just think some subtle things like that, especially in an age where you didn't have digital grading the way you do now, you didn't have all the uh, post-op ability that you do now, you didn't have the ability to kind of just decide, well, we'll shoot on a set and we'll green screen, then we'll just map back in uh, a background of Seattle or something like that afterwards. I mean, you had to do it for real. And that's just an incredible talent uh, to be able to know how to expose the film, how to lens it, how to do everything. And I really love how through the cinematography, he doesn't ever really give a lot of close-ups. I mean, there are close-ups in the film, but every close-up is kind of on a a longer lens. And so the camera doesn't feel like it's right there next to the people. And so you still feel like you're kind of watching from a distance always, which really helps create that visual sense of, of the, of the story. Right. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's incredible work on his part. It's not one that people think of. Obviously when they think of him, they think of the Godfather movies. Uh, They think of um, uh, Annie Hall and some of the other stuff he did with, um, Woody Allen, right? But this one, I think, is a, is a real achievement of of his career that should get a little bit more attention and a little more, more careful analysis from the cinematography perspective. Yeah, it's a great companion piece to Clute, just visually. I mean, that's another film that's shot anamorphic, and there's definitely parallels in, in how characters are framed, and and even uh, you know even the use of some sets in this film really stood out to me. That little kind of dingy apartment that that Warren Beatty's character lives in, there's that one scene where it's, it's a wide shot and the characters are on the extreme ends of the frame. And it's very obviously a set, right? I mean, there's kind of no way you could get that shot. Um, cause it's kind of a longer lens shot without that just being a, a set with a, an open wall, but you don't really necessarily think about it when you're watching it. Um, because it's such a compelling image and just the way it's lit and and just the the choice of camera placement I think is very striking in this film too and and how the camera moves the assassination in the beginning the fact that we're outside the window and we're hearing the the candidates speaking over the microphone and and when he shot the you know the blood coming against the window I mean just very striking uh camera placement and just trying to really amplify the visual impact of what's going on. Um, and, and you're right to say that it's extremely challenging to, to photograph, you know, an interior location with all these windows without really struggling with exposures. And, and it, it looks very effortless here. Right. Um, well, and even just the instinct of like what kind of shot to choose, you know? Yeah. Um, so the fact that, he often has the stationary camera, but there's some impressive camera movement here. I mean, there are some interesting designs from very far back, just watching figures move across a very wide space. Right. And so he's clearly playing with the sense of the space of these buildings. These, uh, you know, they almost look like something out of a science fiction film of the era, like something that would have been in Soylent Green or stuff like that, you know, just because these, these ultra modern, designs that are clearly still dated now but you know very much were the the new cutting edge in in architecture of the of the 60s and 70s right so he's you know capturing that stuff very nicely but then like the fact that he just moves into that handheld footage right after the senator is assassinated right 
Uh, it's just a fascinating choice there. Then, of course, there's assassination that happens later on in the film. And the fact that he doesn't really do a lot of handheld stuff in that, he keeps everything kind of kind of still from far away, which gives more of a feel of the fact that there's some powerful force that's in control that's trapped everybody in this space here, whereas at first it feels like everything's out of control, right? So it's a very interesting way how he designs what shot to use, when to use it. And uh, you know, it's, it's a testament to his instincts as a cinematographer, and I also like how he just... He does play with scale a lot here uh, and how he puts something into a frame. You know, sometimes he makes the figure very small. Sometimes he makes them very big and he can even shift it within a single shot where it starts as a close-up of something and pulls back to become something else. And, you know, it just, it's very interesting uh, how, like you say, it's effortless. I mean, there's nothing in this cinematography that really calls attention to itself. I mean, I think you and I and others who really care about movies are going to notice things and and like them. But if you're just a person who likes watching a movie, you wouldn't necessarily be thinking, boy, what a show-off here. I mean, it just is the way the story is being told. Even simple, and we talked about just the use of practical locations, but um, simple flourishes to, to add some visual interest to the camera work. I, I was thinking about that tracking shot on the plane where he's searching, you know, the seats looking for uh, that guy from the Parallax Corporation and cameras panning back and forth as we're tracking back. And and we as the audience are just kind of looking too, right? And the, the camera is just guiding us throughout that process. And it doesn't come across as really gimmicky or showy somehow, uh, which is interesting because on paper it sounds like that's a pretty gimmicky shot. But somehow it just works with the flow of that scene as we're and Warren Beatty's moving up and down the aisles uh, during various points. But even just, there's there's that one scene where he's talking to the former FBI agent, and uh, he's working at like a little kid's amusement park or something, and they're riding around on that train. And it just, it kind of feels like they were, there's so many conversations in the film, you know, they were just thinking, well, how can we make this more interesting? Well, let's just have him in this kid's ride. And it's it's like this built-in dolly shot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's interesting flourishes like that, which I appreciated for sure. And of course, you know, because you're right that that's kind of a silly setting for that conversation on the kids' train, but it also gives the feel like, well, we're gonna you want to have a conversation like this where it's going to be away from somebody, nobody can hear you, nobody knows what's going on, right? Um, and it feels like, oh, that setting could make sense to pick it for that reason, right? So it doesn't really jump out at you as as obviously, well, we're just trying to make all these different conversations look different, you know, because this is a very talky movie, but it doesn't feel talky because of how well-designed each scene is and the the uniqueness of the different kinds of contact, uh, of, uh, of uh, scenes and conversations, especially, you know, I'm just thinking about even sometimes the color timing, Um the, the reporter that approaches Frady uh, saying that she thinks she's going to be killed, right, at the beginning, right? Uh, when it goes to reveal her having been killed, uh, that color time there is very different than the what you'll see in the rest of the film. Not in an obnoxious way, not in a, like a sense that you feel like something was missed in the in the color timing afterwards, but it just gives a different kind of coldness to that scene and a kind of 
you know, it, it helps you understand why Frady, just by the way that they talk, they do the color time there, it gets you a sense of why Frady maybe feels a guilt and a need to kind of look into this and pursue this as opposed to thinking that the woman just was killed uh, accidentally, right? So it's a, it's a just very smart visual design in this whole film. And that I also, I mean, we're talking about the cinematography, but the production design uh, also should get a lot of credit for that because uh, even though I think some of this is a lot of, you know, found locations george jenkins who did the production design nonetheless still dressed some things up and he he did create uh, whatever the auditorium theater that they have the the test take place in right i mean all those things are very striking visually as well and are captured nicely in the cinematography well we probably should just frame you know uh, the story from a standpoint of i kind of had in my intro you know this assassination occurs um and Freddy is investigating it, and he eventually finds this link to the Parallax Corporation, and and he realizes that this is the the group that's behind these assassinations. And the film doesn't really seem to try to hide what this corporation is doing, right? I mean, we kind of know what they're up to. We don't necessarily know why they're doing what they're doing or who they're working for specifically. Um, so it's hard to say if the if the film is making a comment about. Uh, you know, the evils of corporate America, or is this supposed to represent, like I was saying before, a wing of the intelligence community, uh, the government itself. So there's really this sort of opaque uh, quality to, to the antagonist here. And uh, I guess just any thoughts on that? I mean, what do you think the film is saying about, uh, the Parallax Corporation in particular? Is, is this a proxy for the government or a proxy for corporate America or all the above? Well, this is part of the thing I was getting at earlier with my thought on conspiracies, which is that usually they're like completely nonsensical if you actually try to understand like the conspiracy mind from the outside. I mean, when you we've all met that person who's really obsessed about something you know it could be the jfk assassination or it could be the stop the steal or whatever it might be but when you really talk to that person you realize like it's a lot of half truth it's a lot of conjecture and so it doesn't really hold up to real scrutiny and i think that as a film that's where this is lacking because i don't think it has a coherent idea running through what it's trying to say you know i i think there's some fragment of the idea of the government outsourcing to private companies to do its dirty work, you know, so you have the opening and closing the bookends with this presumably a Senate committee, or it's obviously meant to, meant to be like the Warren Commission, but, you know, investigating uh, or announcing its findings that these were these were not conspiracies, but just a, a sole gunman uh, taking down you know, a senator, right? Mm-hmm. And that gives a feel that, oh, well, it, it's showing that the system is, you know, kind of involved in the cover-up and knows what's going on but doesn't want to let anybody know about it, right? And is just trying to, you know, create a facade, right? And then it clearly has this sense of, uh, in the company itself, they're testing with that that bizarre test. Uh, it's meant to sort of say, well, see, it's manipulating of symbolism to stir you into thinking you're patriotic or stirring you to think that you're something in order to then, you know, kind of make you an agent of this evil, faceless organization, right? Uh, it kind of goes back and forth. I think they even try to 
Well, actually, I'll be interested to hear your thought on this because I'm not sure what what they're trying to do with with Beatty here. If he's supposed to be uh, so deep in his undercover, you know, his presumed dead, and he kind of fakes his own death, uh, does he then, you know, as he's trying to pretend to be a, a potential assassin, is he trying to fake the results uh, to make himself seem like he's an assassin, or is it that? Uh, he himself is the same kind of obsessive personality type that they would want as an assassin, and it just happens that you know he is an, a reporter instead of an assassin. Uh, it just feels like it gets very confused, and it's not fleshed out clearly enough in terms of the characters or some of the plotting to make sense of necessarily what the themes are for the film, other than a general sense of people are lying to you. It's very open to interpretation, right? I mean, just on the surface, it it seems like he's infiltrating this group to investigate it, right? And and he sort of has this nonchalant attitude about everything he's experiencing, even that montage. He doesn't seem particularly affected by it. He just kind of sits there, and then it's over. Uh, it's not like, you know, Alex and Clockwork Orange <laughs> uh, having his eyes forced open. It's it's much more voluntary, I guess. And the the other way you can go with it is, well, was he brainwashed, right, as a result of that montage experience and and coerced into committing this assassination? He didn't realize he did it, and it's the film doesn't make it clear, right? Um, so I I think that's the whole point of the film in a way is that it, it, it's trying to make it things very opaque, but you're right. I mean, as, as an audience member, I think you probably want a little more to go on. Um, I, I mean, what were your thoughts? I mean, do you, it, it, it seemed to me that they were just trying to frame him for what occurred. Right. And this was just kind of an elaborate ruse. To, oh, for sure. Yeah. To make him, yeah. um, the, to, to pin the murder on him, right? So, I mean, I, I, on the surface, that that's what it seems like, but the film leaves it open enough to make you wonder, uh, did he actually commit the murder himself? No, I don't think it... I think it's very clear that he doesn't and that he he, he was investigating them and trying to go deep undercover. The part I was trying to say was, like, when the, the guy from the Parallax Corporation shows up at his apartment and is saying, hey, you know, this test result really was impressive to us. And yeah. you probably feel like this. And he's you know, he's sitting there with the, the hot plate. He's cooking and then he you know, throws down and gets upset, you know. Okay, so the question to me is, okay, are we supposed to be looking at the character of Joseph Frady in that moment as I'm playing a part trying to present myself as this antisocial type for these people? Or is the movie trying to say, you know what, he actually kind of has some of those same antisocial tendencies on his own, and they kind of are attracted to him? I don't know that it's clear whether it's supposed to be like he's playing a part and trying to present himself this way, or if they are trying to say he really is that way himself as well. Uh, and I... I I put part of that on the fact that I just think Warren Beatty is not a very good actor. And I don't think he can handle that much of range in his performances. And I don't think, uh, I mean, as I was watching this, you know, I just thought to myself, my gosh, uh, there's absolutely nobody who would ever think this guy is not a reporter. I'm sure that as you get to the end, you kind of get the sense that they knew all along. He yeah. was a patsy, yeah. Uh, because you know, I mean, in fact, he's also on the boat that they blow up. I mean, how do they not know he was on the boat? 
it's like it just seems like they're not very good at their job if they if they got a, if they have a, a person survive a, a boat explosion there like, like that. So uh, it just seems like they would have known who this guy was all along. And so the question to me is, you know, does the movie suffer because it's maybe a little too opaque? And I don't mean opaque. You know, I don't mind having ambiguities. I don't mind having films that don't tease out every single motive or every single thing that's happening. But if I, if I'm at a point where I'm, I'm kind of like, what's the motive of everybody here? That strikes me as a problem. At some level, we should have a sense of the what what the heck is this point of these assassinations, right? Other than I guess it's just to to kill. I mean, that's that seems to be kind of. No real clear motive uh, uh, understood here as to why the, the the company exists. Yeah, I mean that that point probably should have been clarified. You know what their agenda really is that would have been helpful. It does seem very nebulous in that regard. Um, so yeah, I mean uh, whether or not we need to make it explicitly clear what they really think of Warren Beatty's character is not necessarily needed. I don't think I, I the film kind of, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it doesn't quite decide how it wants to present that piece of it too. Right. Uh, what I had mentioned before, I mean, the, the film could very easily kind of push things to the point where the audience is going to be questioning more whether or not he was brainwashed or whether or not he really is, um, an agent of this company, uh, and he was actually legitimately recruited. And the film never quite pushes it to that point where I think you're really seriously entertaining that possibility, right? Uh, even though it feels like it was trying to get there. So it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. It doesn't quite seem able to decide what it wants to be. And you're probably right to say it. That's that's a, a shortfall in the writing. Um I'm not familiar with the original novel, so it's hard for me to, as you said, it's more about the JFK assassination, but um, in terms of how much was pulled out of that for this is is hard for me to say. But well, we probably should talk about the performances in more detail. Um, so if Warren Beatty doesn't make it for you, who, who would you want to see in this film? I think... Again, this is the, recognizing if they did this movie, this would have changed other movies they would have done uh, because they're making they're making other movies at the same time. But I think a Jack Nicholson in this part would have been electrifying. Yeah, I mean, it, he I think he would have that and he could have really gotten the sense of is this guy going to wind up being like recruited and brainwashed into becoming a killer? I mean, with Warren Beatty, you get the sense he's the the Hollywood hero and the handsome man and all that. Whereas Jack Nicholson, you could see him maybe becoming that. That's psycho. Um, uh, I think Al Pacino would have been a really good part uh, for this as well. Uh, I think he would have done very well with the the kind of sense of growing panic uh, or, or, or paranoia or anything. Yeah. Like that. I think he could have captured that. It would have been fun to see him. So those are the two that I think would have really served the film well in the lead role. Yeah, those are good picks. I um... Yeah, Nicholson in particular, I, I I see a lot of parallels with Chinatown with this picture, just in terms of the journey of the main character, right? Right. And and that's yeah, that would be a good fit. You know, Harrison Ford occurred to me too that you know he might be oh a real young Harrison Ford, yeah, yeah not bad. Yeah, yeah, that that would have been pretty 
pretty neat to see, I think. Um, so, yeah, it is a weakness. I mean, Warren Beatty, you know, he has the charisma, he has the charm. I think some of those dialogue scenes, especially between him and his editor, the interplay between them is pretty effective, and I like those scenes. Yeah, Hume Cronin, who plays I mean, one of the classic character yeah. actors, and I, I just like him in everything. He's really good. Yeah, he's awesome. He's great in this, and and he's kind of the perfect counterpoint, right? He's the the real practical, business minded editor, and he, for some reason, has a soft spot for for Warren Beatty's character, and and so there, there's an interesting dynamic there uh, that I, I think works it come we come back to it a few times throughout the film um but yeah there isn't a whole lot to kind of cling on to here in terms of performances i mean there really aren't any consistent um supporting characters throughout the film other than you know that one assassin who's not really not a character we just see him showing up at various points in, in the film um well i thought the i will say the um the Walter McGinn plays the Jack Younger, the the guy from Parallax. That's I guess you'd call them the recruiter. Yeah, he shows up later on. Yeah, you know, it's not a very big part, but and it's not that there's anything necessarily he does that's incredible in the performance, but it's more about just the the casting. Sometimes just casting the right look or feel makes a difference. And I think you know, the to the extent that the film's trying to present this as sort of a. Um, an insidious force that would go by unnoticed. Having him be that recruiter is perfect. He looks just like any middle management guy for yeah. any business. Whereas if you had this big beefy guy that you know is going to look like he's you know bench pressing three hundred pounds or something, you go, well, that guy doesn't work in an office. <laughs> so uh, I think that just that decision to cast that actor for that part really goes a long way of just trying to sell the sense of this insidious company. Uh, even if we don't quite know or understand what's this company's relationship to anything else or how it fits into any big picture, it nonetheless does go a long way of help of helping us feel the the sense of this undetectable force. Yeah, this company seems very keen on spectacles for their assassinations. I mean, you know, uh, it has to be at large gatherings or a huge convention or blowing up a plane. They don't really do anything small, evidently. Um, it's, it's should be called the conspicuous corporation. Oh well, it's uh, funny because when it's like minor characters that nobody cares about, they're very good at making it look like an accident. Yeah. But it's a senator, <laughs> it's just like just like do it in real style. <laughs> it's like why don't they make him look like he had a heart attack? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I, I I don't know. The there must be another division of the company that's. The un- under the radar division. I guess they got to do like it's. You know what? I, I mean, I'm just saying. If I was running a company like this, I guess I have to have some kind of marketing appeal. Like, yeah, that one, that was us. Like, you see that guy? Because if like everything looks like you didn't do it, like everything looks like they just got killed by accident, then how would you know that? If I'm a prospective client trying to enlist your services, how would I know that these people are actually assassins? Well, there you go. I, so I, you got to have think... a couple of these. You got to have these high profile things every now and again. I think you cracked it. <laughs> Not that I'm into these things. No, no, fair enough, fair enough. You, you just have the business plan already worked out, that's all. <laughs> I'd like to announce my new LLC. 
Well, um, any other thoughts before we get into Criterion's release? I mean, I, I think, I think I have a good sense of where you come down on on this film. Well, I would say, I mean, it's a fascinating genre, I guess, of film. But like I said, these kinds of films they they can't just speak to you intellectually. This seems to be a very intellectual film, um, whereas. You need it to be something more, right? You need it to be something that that kind of gets you in your gut. I think that's the way you invest into it. Yeah, or we, buy in, or buy into it. Maybe is the better way. Of- yeah, yeah. Uh, we probably should mention the Manchurian Candidate too. I mean, I probably should have mentioned that earlier. Is an important previously discussed on the podcast here. Yeah, uh, important predecessor to this film. I mean, right down to the big convention sort of ending, even though. In this case, it's uh, a convention rehearsal, but there's definitely some callbacks, I think, there. And in many ways, you could say that that's the original political paranoia thriller. Uh, so it definitely takes takes some cues from that film. Should we talk about the the test scene, I guess, in more detail? Yeah, yeah. I guess we didn't uh, get into that uh, too much. Yeah, go go so- for it. Well, it's obvious, I mean, you've already made the connection with that and A Clockwork Orange, which has a similar thing of the brainwashing for Alex, right? This is a little different in that I don't know that the scene is supposed to be exactly a brainwashing as it is supposed to be uh, a psychological test that you see and then based on how you respond to it, that tells them whether you're a candidate for what they want you to do or not, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And what was interesting about this versus the Clockwork Orange is that in Stanley Kubrick, right, he he cuts to the shots of Alex responding to it. So you see him, you see how he's responding to it, uh, and then you kind of get the sense of how it's impacting the world around it. This one, it just goes into it. It never breaks away until it's all done. So it's it's almost more like it's trying to be like you and I are experiencing the test the way the character is. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if the idea with uh, Pacula there was to try to uh, try to make you and me, you know, experience the test and see if it evokes a reaction in us, uh, or if it's just that he wanted us to have it without any sort of commentary or how he wanted to do it. But I will say that it struck me as being extraordinarily obvious what he was doing, and I can't imagine that people watching that test if that was the way the test was presented in real life wouldn't be able to tell immediately what you're doing you know would you have the picture of mother and then it shows other different pictures of a mother and then it's comes back to mother again and then it shows it a little bit more downtrodden and then the kind of you know boom 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 boom, boom a, a barrage of images it strikes me as something that would never actually ever be done in real life but it's something that a guy making a movie would think, boy, this could correspond to what I'm thinking. And it seems very obvious how he understands this world, but not necessarily how the world is itself in reality, right? Uh, so that's that's kind of my take is that the, the, the whole sequence seems extraordinarily obvious for what it's doing. I don't know if that's the way it would have played in 74 or if it would have been real shocking and jolting for audiences at that time. But nearly 50 years later... It strikes me as very obvious. Yeah, I, th- I think so. It goes on for a very long time. And the point is made, I think, relatively quickly. It just reminded me of, of sort of the Eisenstein you know, kind of experiment, right? 
where it's you're juxtaposing different images and it gives you different meanings and interpretations and and I it just felt I saw what they were going for and I, I admired the boldness of it to say okay we're just gonna put the audience through exactly what the character is going through right um, but I, I felt like the sequence was not particularly well edited. <laughs> I mean, at a certain point, it just became, became this real random assembly of images, and it didn't seem to have a lot of thought put into, okay, we want to juxtapose this image with this image, uh, and then we're going to take the second image and put it with this other image, and we're, we're trying to evoke you know, this emotional response with this combination versus this combination. It just seemed like it could have been better thought through to, to sort of progress someone's emotions or interpretations in such a way that as the viewer, we should be kind of feeling this transformation taking place in a way. Does that make sense? You know, we Mm -hmm. should be able to perceive how the images working together are changing our perceptions of what we're seeing. And, and I I felt like it wasn't successful doing that because it just got too randomized by the end of it. Um, so I, 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 understand what they're going for and I, I like the boldness of it but the execution of it was was lacking I thought we'll go ahead and talk about uh, Criterion's release so like I said this was kind of a surprise title for them to to put out and uh, it was released just last year it's pretty striking kind of minimalist cover art uh, with the uh, patriotic bullet kind of going through a silhouette of, of Warren Beatty and it's kind of a spoiler now that I think about it um, it has new 4k transfer I, I don't think this was released on 4k right it was just the blu-ray and dvd yeah just the blu-ray dvd um, yeah so it has uh, an introduction by Alex Cox uh, interviews with the director and uh, kind of a fairly recent interview with Gordon Willis. Uh, couple, uh, well, at least one new interview as well, and, and an essay. Uh, so I, I watched this on the Criterion channel. I, they did include the supplements. I didn't have a chance to go through the supplements. Uh, did you take a look at those at all, Nate? I did. Uh, I actually really uh, loved the uh, interview with Gordon Willis. It just was yeah, great need, to hear him. I need to watch him. that. So I would recommend it. It's about 18 minutes or so. It's not okay. quite uh, a half hour. Um, but no, that was just very insightful, and just hearing him talk about filmmaking is is a treat, you know. So anybody who actually cares about movies and how the artwork, uh, how the art works, I mean, just go watch what he has to say because it's very insightful, and and it just really has a kind of a, a humble and sincere quality to him as a person in that interview. So really, just fantastic. Uh, the uh, Alex Cox introduction was uh, laughable <laughs> that he just spent a whole bunch of time basically running through his thought that JFK was assassinated by a conspiracy. <laughs> and I thought, okay, but, uh, we're talking about the parallax view, <laughs> but anyways, uh, so I did, I did watch the, but that, that Gordon Willis interview is the highlight, absolutely the highlight. So it wasn't an Oliver Stone interview. I would love to see Oliver Stone talk about this movie. Yeah, that would be interesting, actually. All right, so Nate, does the Parallax View belong in the Criterion Collection? 
I'm going to say no. Uh, not because, uh, you know, it's a bad, it's not even like a, that it's a bad movie. It's just not a particularly good movie, right? And it's just a very middle of the road kind of film. There are some interesting things in it, but I think that it hasn't really had a huge impact. I know there's some people who have a real strong affinity for it, but overall, it doesn't feel like it landed as a cultural movement. I think a lot of other films of this genre and of this period that were much more significant and influential. And um, those, some of those are in the Criterion Collection, and others of them should be in there. Uh, but I'd say this one does not belong there. Yeah, I, I'd be forced to agree with you. I, I, I like the film. I, I think it's a good film. It's definitely a weaker example of the genre, like I said before. I, I don't think it quite reaches the status of, uh, you know, important or, or classic. But, you know, it, it's nice that it's there. Uh, but, yeah, if it was up to me, I, I, I don't think I would I would include it. Well, thanks for listening this evening. Our film next month will be Robert Altman's Secret Honor, which will be released in July. Thanks again, and keep collecting. <laughs>